So hey everybody, welcome to episode 237 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitchell and I am in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined by Mark Rubin down in San Jose, California. Hello. And we have Jaime Lopez Jr., who is in, currently in Tokyo, Nihonbashi region, Japan. How's it going? Going pretty good. So Jaime, what city are you in now? Are you in Tokyo? Yes, in the Nihonbashi area. It seems to be a central business district. Hmm. Have you seen much of, much of Japan or are you just kind of landed in Tokyo International Airport or whatever and there you are? I haven't gone outside of Tokyo. It's, it's such a short trip, just a week. Um, the, the travel time between destinations was something I thought about. And I said, well, I've never been to Tokyo, so I can visit a whole bunch of the different... I don't even know what they call them. I'm going to call them neighborhoods, because it's like an American thing to call it. Like the neighborhood regions, like Shinjuku, Shibuya, uh, Akihabara, all those different sort of... Like, you probably remember the names because you heard it somewhere uh, online sort of thing. (laughs) And and just, like, looking up, hey, top ten things to do, and then doing some of those things. Uh, So I've stayed completely within the the boundaries of Tokyo just for this short trip. And I still feel like I probably haven't seen anywhere near all of it. I've only seen, like, the the top ten list, touristy type list for each of the different regions. Alrighty, so um, we don't have uh, just to put a fact check note on here. Last week I was talking, and I, I'm you know I'm yelling at myself in the phone because I knew when I said that the L L E M was it's actually it stands for Lunar Excursion Module, um, but they just call it LEM for short or Lunar Module sometimes. Um, but um, I don't know what I said last week, but it was completely wrong. So anyway, apologies yeah. for that. We know what you meant. <laughs> but I think I said Evacuation Module or something ridiculous like that. Mm. Oh, by the way, um, by now. Now, by the time this recording comes out, it may be too late, but I went and saw Apollo 11 on the IMAX on Saturday with, like, several members of my family, and it is amazing. So it's apparently in the theaters, in IMAX theaters, until March 7th, which is tomorrow. So if you haven't seen it already, you lose. But yeah, if you can, go see it. Like, it's it's jaw-dropping. You will you won't take your eyes off the screen for the entire time. It's only 90 minutes long, too, so great, great movie. And it's, it's not a lot of voiceover and... Stuff like that, so it's very, very, very compelling. And it's getting like you said. I think you think you said last week, Mark. What is it? One hundred percent. Got one hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, it's pretty so. damn good. Mm-hmm. We'll probably win for best documentary at the Oscars next year. Let's let's hope so. All right, so Jaime, do we have any Ask MTJC? Have you had a look? We do. We've got a couple. The first one is from Mike Hendley. He says, uh, with regard to your last show, we have some very smart folks who I work making excellent use of VR. Not HoloLens AR in this case, but it is exciting to see this kind of tech moving into healthcare. And he is hopefully giving us a link for the show notes for those of you driving at home about a uh, 3D virtual reality system that helps neurosurgeons treat Parkinson's by seeing a uh, virtual version of the patient's brain and so they can um, better understand the patient's particular challenges and see it without having to like cut the person open i, I assume this is based off of the um what do you call it the uh, not the cat scan the uh, mri mm-hmm. so that seems pretty cool cool Maybe more. The other one is from a uh, friend of the show and sometimes former co-host, <laughs> <laughs> now engineer at a big fruit company, <laughs> um, Greg Hio. I was, I, I was going to call him Gregory Archibald Hio, and I couldn't help myself, and I stopped halfway. Um, you don't know Greg, and if you don't, welcome to the show. Greg is one of our friends. On Roundabout, we were calling him Greg who? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
Yeah, too bad he's not a too bad he's not a doctor. Um, so he says the uh, the closest TFSA equivalent is a Roth IRA post tax contributions, no tax on withdrawal. The American host should know what it is, and that's a reference to our discussion of Canadian and American retirement account stuff. So a TFSA in the USA is a Roth IRA. IRA. Yeah, and I think uh, one thing I probably should have said last week about the t- TFSAs. I think you can contribute uh, roughly five thousand dollars per year to them. They're not they're not you know big time saving things, but they're handy for, for tucking away some money. Well, there is one more uh, Ask MTGC too. I mean, you might have missed it um, from Paul Wilco. Paul Wilkinson, uh, who's Paul Wilco on Twitter. He he said that he just checked his Apple Watch and he said it definitely needs to be unlocked to unlock his Mac. So I'm pretty sure Sam had Sam Grover had said that uh, he were able to do it without. Uh, so your mileage will vary on that one. Yeah, I wonder if that changed over time or if that's some sort of setting that might be different. You know, like how Face ID has the, you can be the super secure, like you actually have to be looking at the phone, not just, you know, phone scanning your face, but some people turn that off. So it's a little bit more convenient when they're using the phone and it's laying on their desk or something. I wonder if it's that sort of situation where it's like a setting. I, I have to admit, I have not checked into this to see because my, uh, my old school MacBook Pro that I'm desperately looking to replace if Apple should release something in the next month or so um, does not support the unlock with a watch. So I can't actually check it out myself. Yeah. It's slightly too old. It's literally the last uh, or the first model that does not support it when you go back in time. Well, my 2013 MacBook Air works with it pretty, pretty, pretty well. Uh, the one thing about it, I mean, like, you know, so my, my phone is set to unlock my watch, right? So, um, or I guess like, you know, if it, my watch tells me, you know, I can enter the passcode. If, if I took it off my wrist right now, it, it immediately locks. And if you put it on your wrist, it would, it would, you know, require a password to unlock it. But if I picked up my phone, like if you were being like nefarious or whatever, and, you, and I picked up my phone and I started looking at Twitter or whatever, the action of unlocking my phone would unlock my watch. And therefore you could walk over to my Mac and, you know, when I'm not paying attention and, you know, send some evil emails or something or download those files onto that USB stick we talked about last week. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. So, I mean, like, yeah, I, I suppose technically there's, there's a, there's gotta be a way to lock it, but, uh, and, and I mean, like, it's not flawless. Like, I think there's a certain time up period. I don't know what, specifically what it is. Like, you know, how, you know, how face ID and touch ID, they were after, after a certain period of time, no matter what, they will ask you for your passcode because it's been like so many days, you know, since they, they checked you or whatever. So yeah, right. there's probably some limits like that in there. All right. So on the follow-up, um, I, my first follow-up here is that uh, just basically the Apple sent out, you know, we talked last week about uh, that email that came to the podcasters telling us about adding episode numbers. And I went to, you know, Dan Benjamin asked him about that on Slack and, he wrote, he contacted somebody at Apple and, you know, there was some tweets going back and forth with fellow podcasters. And then, uh, then a couple of days later, Apple sent us a, we're sorry email, basically saying that, uh, they were just trying to advise us on how to best, uh, create titles for our things. And that we wouldn't, they wouldn't quote, I'm doing air quotes, remove our show because of a, a violation like that. But somebody then pointed on Twitter that, um, you know, all the developers out there know that like you break, you break a rule in, in the submissions and, and, you know, you're going to get bounced from the store, not removed from the store, but you may not get approved or whatever. So we're a little, we're a little, you know, a little uh, gun shy on, on that, um, that front when Apple sends out these, uh, these warnings to us, right? Yeah. I think the reputation of the company for how it tends to operate is something really important. And in all fairness, like I'm sure it is completely different people that are involved with the iTunes podcast type stuff versus app store review, but 
for folks who do cross over, like you mentioned, like like we do, I can totally understand why people were a little twitchy about some random new rule coming out and just assuming that they were going to lay down the hammer uh, as they do in the App Store review process. And so I completely understand that people were were scared. I mean, it's it's different in terms of impact because you know, as much as it would suck to not be in the iTunes directory, um, that is just a directory. It's not as if it hosts any of the podcasts, such as this very podcast itself. So there still are other routes by which people could subscribe and listen to our show but it's in contrast to you know getting kicked out of the app store and in the worst possible case they reject your developer certificate and then i guess you're open sourcing and having people download your app separately uh just for giggles i i can understand why people were very afraid of like please don't please don't kill my podcast sort of thing for something that seemed um relatively trivial like well okay what does it matter if we put you know episode 237 in the title um we've done that for a long time or uh, it's helpful for people to understand where they're at. I, I get where Apple's coming from in terms of it kind of looks weird in the UI to see their number one, number two, number three is 237, 236, 235. And it's like, what? <laughs> this is sorted wrong. What's happening here? Um, I, I completely get where they're coming from. I, it is a shame that we're sort of uh, overly sensitive because of history with the App Store review process. So I feel really sorry for the, the uh, iTunes podcast directory folks who I'm guessing had no idea how their, their terminology or their phrasing was going to be interpreted. Yeah. And it, it, to be honest with you, I think Apple's a bit a bit guilty of some navel gazing because um, you know I've been to the podcast page on iTunes and Discovery is just it, it's ten times worse than it is on the App Store. Like there's you know unless you know specifically which category, I mean the categories aren't that well defined and you know y- y- there's no rhyme or reason to it. And and they also have they had to do a bit of edit- editorializing by you know putting up the most popular podcasts. And I think that I don't know just these algorithms that try to decide what what you'd be interested in. I think. I don't know if it's written by an algorithm or there's a person there picking, handpicking the new and notable stuff. I mean, you know, we've sort of thrown, been thrown into like we're like a snowflake in a snowstorm or, or like what did they say on Star Trek the other day? Um, a grain of sand in a hurricane or something like that. Right. Um, we're just kind of thrown into the thing and, and yet we've risen up to through through people, you know, liking our show and, and you know, listening to it. And I guess the some of the metadata that we put into our into our description, we've risen to the top of, the, you know, the iOS development podcast, but we still don't show up if you go over to, I mean, if you do the search, we show up, sure, but if you just go in and just want to troll around and look and see what's what's on Apple Podcasts page or site or whatever you want to call it, where you you wouldn't find us, right? So, you know, so I don't know that that it's all that important at the end of the day, whether we put, what we, what we put in our titles, you know, people are going to find us, you know, through, through tools like Overcast or whatever, word of mouth, and they're going to subscribe and, you know, because I I don't know how 2,000 people or whatever it is, you know, per week, listen to us, how they find us. I have no clue. And Apple certainly isn't sharing that information with me. Yeah. I do think the flip side of this, though, is that it's been helpful for openness and ease of um, interoperability. Like, you know, if you don't like the Apple Podcasts app, you can very easily export what you want and import that into Overcast or Pocket Casts or Castro and like a million other different podcast apps. And so the, the flip side of Apple being relatively quiet and uh, not doing a whole lot in this area is that they have allowed the industry room to grow and breathe. And I worry a little bit that if they if they get a little too interested, I don't want them to go down the the route of like what Spotify and others are um, trying to uh, Stitcher and all these other ones trying to do to like close the environment where you can pretty much just listen to content through the 
through their particular apps rather than having it be, hey, it's an RSS feed and you subscribe whatever, uh, whenever and with whatever application you want to use. But hopefully they don't uh, go to the, oh, you might be interested in listening to this kind of nonsense we see in other social networks and things like that, right? Um, mm-hmm. We're happy to have the people who are listening to us. Thanks for listening to the show. We really do appreciate it. Um, we don't do this for, we do this for you guys, for your love. Um, anyway, uh, let's move on. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. This is another follow-up item on, on the, the bug bounty that there is no Mac OS bug bounty. And uh, there was a security researcher who had found a keychain bug and he demonstrated it and that kind of stuff. And and uh, he just, you know, even even he was kind of holding out, I think, for the, I think we, I think you mentioned this last week, Tommy, he was holding out for some sort of recognition or bug bounty or something like that from Apple. There is one on iOS per se. But there isn't one on um, on um, the Mac, so he finally did. Uh, he handed over the uh, information he had on on how to, uh, and he's got a video here demonstrating how you basically can um, get some, get a password out of the keychain uh, through some some skullduggery. Uh, he wrote a little demo app that shows how to uh, how to go in and read the keychain items um, without authentication and get because you can go in and you know the Mac keychain and you can authenticate and see what the password is. But he's found a way to do it without that. So hopefully Apple will get that password up soon, but uh, in the meantime, uh, yeah, there should be something about the bug bounty. And I think I read something in this article I have posted here about the fact that the iOS bug bounty hasn't actually, I mean, it's 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 not as simple as reporting a bug and getting paid. It's kind of like you have to do a fair bit of work to get the recognition. Are you guys familiar with the iOS bug bounty at all? Not too much. Why don't you tell us about it, Tim? Well, I'm just looking here. I think it's the last line here. It says, while Apple does have a bug bounty for researchers who find security problems in iOS, even that has been called stingy compared to other firms. And it leads to another another article from uh, earlier last or 20, 2017 about uh, a bit more detail on Apple's bug bounty. Uh, it doesn't often pay out that often. It seems to have a max Maximum, maximum payout of 200k, which doesn't sound bad, but it doesn't mean that they actually pay that very often. Well, it's like I don't know if you've ever heard about the uh, used to have this thing called the software police, where you know if you if you illegally installed a copy of a Microsoft product or an Adobe product, um, you know that we there have been whistleblower programs where you know if you blow the whistle on somebody who you know who's illegally downloading apps and installing them on their computers, you know there's like a pick a number any number <laughs> kind of reward. Mm. Uh, but I do know that the only time they pay out is if it actually leads to a conviction. So, and you know, that proving those kind of things is awfully, awfully hard. And nine times out of 10, the, the companies that, that chase these guys are just looking for some sort of settlement anyway. And it's not the companies, like it's not Microsoft or Adobe that are doing the, the actual chasing. It's usually some legal firm that's doing it. Mm-hmm. So these kind of bounties are, you know, they're not, uh, they're not a payday, you know? Well, actually in the same article, it says private companies like Zerodium pay upward of one and a half million for a full set of bugs that can jailbreak an iPhone, the report. Right. Says. Yeah, that's the other, other, the other firms side will of accept it. iOS exploits for 500K, depending on their intrinsic value. Yeah. Yeah, there's a market for it. There's a market for it, for sure. Yeah. I'm a little surprised that their, what was described there as stinginess, I'm a little surprised that they do it. Like, I understand that, um, what is this, uh, a race to the top? <laughs> it's good, the opposite of a race to the race bottom. To like, the bottom, yeah, yeah. You know, they, let's say for giggles and grins, they said, all right, a million dollars, or what was the highest one? You said 1.5 million. All right, we're going to make it $2 million. Do you uh, are incentivized to give that to Apple? That would help, but it would also not help in all cases because we've talked about in the show the other, entities who don't really care about that sort of budgeting you know the we're talking large government entities can easily pay more than that if it's something that will get them access
access to um, a high-profile target that they're looking to, to hack, right? So I, I, I don't understand why Apple doesn't just align their payments with the rest of the industry, with what like Google and Microsoft are offering. Just, you know, just, just peg it uh, or pin it to the same value and say, all right, you know, we're roughly in the same area. And I'm very surprised that they're uh, stingy on the side of like not having a Mac OS. Like what, what does it even matter? It should just be, if we have an Apple product, um, and I guess it's, you know, within some reasonable amount of um, freshness, like that for support, why don't they just offer the Bug Bounty program across the board? Like why why is iOS sort of the, the favorite child here and not tvOS and, and watchOS? And, and so I have my theory on that. And I think it, I think it's because of the size of the market, potential market and the potential for loss. Um, like the, I think the iOS market, the number of iPhone devices that are out there, like eclipses how many Macs are out there per se. And, you know, the potential to lose, you know, critical information on a Mac, I think is a lot lower than would be if you, if you were able to exploit people's iPhones, you know, cause you can get contact databases, you can get, you know, passwords, you can get banking information, you know, people, people don't load a banking app onto their Mac yet. Maybe Marsaban will change that, you know? Um, so, well, you know, yes, they, yes, they do. They have like specific Mac OS binaries that run this or they're talking, or I'm not talking about browser. Specific banks, but I use, I use banking software that, that, uh, will let me, uh, log into my various bank accounts and, and with, you know, and it, it stores the passwords within the, within the application that, so I don't need, I don't need to pa- type password in myself. I can just log into my account and pull down all my information. Sure, yeah. So, so that info is there, but I, but I do agree not to, not to argue your, your main point though, that, that absolutely the size of the iOS market is just, just eclipses the size of the Mac OS market. And, uh, not only in, in amount of usage, but in, in mind share and importance to Apple as a company, if it ever got out, uh, that iPhones got hacked on a, on a large scale, that would be just a complete disaster for Apple. Yeah. Yeah. And Google too, to be honest with you, like same thing there, yep. right? Yep. True. I mean, I guess those reasons make sense to me as to why they specifically chose that. I'm just coming back to the stinginess. I'm surprised that the company is successful economically as Apple would even have to like decide whether or not it would have pizza parties on Friday or, <laughs> or a bug bounty program for Mac OS. Right? I'm being very facetious here, but yeah. um, it seems like they're not, you know, hurting for cash and that it, I don't think it would be a huge uh, it is kind of outlay yeah. for Mac OS yeah. given the things that we just talked about. Yep. Maybe there's some, there's some history to it too, because historically uh, the Mac was much more secure than other operating systems to, to this kind of issue. Uh, so, so maybe they built up a culture of not feeling that they need that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. I think, I think that may be to the case, but yeah, and it's the ubiquity of the, of the smartphone devices that are out there. Right. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people are spending, you know, there's all kinds of statistics on the amount of time you're using on your phones these days. That's, you know, Apple's even added an app to tell you how much That's time true. you're spending on your yeah. your phones where compared to your Macs kind of thing, right? Anyway, uh, next story here is, is I don't know if you guys heard today or the last couple of days that Facebook, we talked about Facebook and Apple having a new stance on privacy and encryption, but uh, there was some, some comments earlier today. I think maybe Zuckerberg might have got up and said something about it. And of course, I saw one of the tweets coming back about, you know, with what Facebook has been doing with the our, our information, you know, where the customer is the, is the business or, our, you know, the users of the business, um, you know, they're questioning whether their new stance on privacy and encryption. But that leads me to the story that uh, that I found earlier this week that um, apparently Facebook, you know, has been allowing you to use two-factor authentication on your phone, or, or, sorry, on your device using your phone number for to prove that, you know, as a sec- the second factor. Um, and then turning around and de- doling out those numbers, those phone 
phone numbers to other to their their clients. So it's kind of like you're giving you're trusting Facebook with this this critical piece of information that you know that you're in this case here your SMS number to um, for, to be used for your security and they're they're doling that out to according to Fast Company here they're doling that out to um, third parties right yeah yeah uh, it's it's almost like they don't well I I don't know whether they don't care or they're not paying attention or it, it, it's it's sort of hard to believe but but uh, it, it seems to be what they're doing it, it's it's almost too mind boggling to to even imagine yeah well the, the comment here is oh and Facebook won't let users opt out of this privacy violation that they never opted into yeah yeah so I think my my take on this is definitely Facebook has some interesting cultural problems to deal with in order to avoid this sort of thing happening but i think it's very similar to what we just talked about for apple where the you know podcast review team didn't realize what you know normally happens on the app store review team and so they were completely unaware of how their words were going to be interpreted i think here what i would guess without knowing any information at all is dollars to donuts says there's a team that did the 2fa stuff there's phone numbers in there for whatever reason they didn't like secure api access or database access to that information so a completely different random set of engineers are like hey we want to do this thing to make it easier to find people what do you have oh you have phone numbers in your contact list right let's make an easy way to oh look this is in the database we can access that and i think <laughs> i think that's why you can't opt out because nobody was like they're like hey well hey, you know hymas phone number is one two three four five six seven you know yeah like we can make access to that why not do that and i think it was yeah. probably not like oh nefarious reasons but just uh sort of lack of competence and core values around protecting that sort of information like i couldn't imagine apple doing this for example right that's yeah. not the way they role but i could see how for completely innocent reasons this huge security screw-up happens yeah well i've been i've been bugged by facebook you know to you know to add a phone number to the more, more than just code page and the spotcast page and you know i, I kind of wondered about that like why why are they doing this and and uh yeah look at this there's my phone number right there how about that well and and they're sort of saying that you know people can people can look you up by this this by looking for your phone number now like you know crazy you know i think there was something came up the other day from one of these networks i think it was facebook asking the oh you know we can make it much more easier by just you know slurping your your contacts into into here so you can help you find your friends on Facebook you know like we think we said this three or four years ago no thank you very much you know anyway so I am now at the moment on Facebook changing my privacy settings <laughs> that's another reason why you go to Facebook friends. yeah at least they let you change the privacy to friends so only your friends can look you up yeah wow. yeah I was actually I was actually just in there myself looking this is yeah. under settings right who can see your friends list public that means everyone can privacy yeah see Mark you don't spend enough time on here they keep changing these things. This is the yeah. thing about Facebook, you know? Well, this is one reason I don't use it is because of this kind of stuff. Who can send your friends requests? Everyone can send me friend requests. So let's change that to so remember, friends. It might have been just last week. I don't know. We, we've talked about this this quarter quite a bit, but this gets at the heart of what we've said here where data is a liability. You should try to collect as little of it as possible because bad things can happen. And I think this is a, a shining example of like data was collected for ostensibly a good reason and had things happen as a result. So you got to be careful even in, you know, at the indie level all the way up to the giant corporate behemoth level. It's not an easy problem to solve other than, I guess, not collecting it at all. And then your, your problem is very easy. Yeah, I'm just changing my my privacy settings myself. 
<laughs> oh, Facebook, you make me laugh. And the sad part of it is, like, in our case, our family, we use it to keep in touch with our keep in touch with our family. Like, you know, I have relatives in Europe and Asia, and and you know, across Canada as well, right? And I also want to know what Jaime's doing on the weekend too. That's very important. <laughs> My uh, disgruntled rumblings about local ISPs and and how their stuff does or does not work for people visiting this fine country. Um, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So we were earlier today. We were or earlier in the broadcast before we started recording. We were talking about some code issues, and you know, we don't talk about code. We, we do talk about code, but we don't talk about it all that much. But but I, I just wanted to talk about a story that I've just come across um, yesterday. Actually, um, I was in the process of uh, the, the catalyst for this was my 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 web provider changed my PHP to PHP seven, which broke a whole bunch of APIs for me. So I had to go through and rewrite some of my API calls, and so I spent a weekend doing that. And so I, as I as I did that, came back to the apps that use those APIs. I've been looking at things in the apps and going, oh well, this still this bothers me. So I went in and fixed a few things. One of the things I'm doing is is setting up some of the apps to work with the you know the iPhone 10 series of phones, or the 10, the 10R, and 10S, which of course because of the sensor area, otherwise known as the notch, uh, use this new safe area thing. And so you know some of my code isn't is still in Objective C as I mentioned before. And one protect one app in particular, I haven't done any Swift in. So so um, I was just going through and, and looking at this one particular table view that I was having trouble fitting onto the iPhone 10. Like in other words, it was going down into that chin area. You know, you're, you have that little home indi- indicator. You're supposed to you're supposed to stay away from that. So because people are going to swipe up and down there, right? Mm-hmm. And I had some some interaction I wanted to have down there, and it, for some reason it wasn't working. So I went back into that view controller and looked around, and it was built on a b- bunch of different things. But one of the things on there was a table view, and below that was um, like a little um, handmade toolbar with a, with a text field in it that you could enter text in, and it would it would update the table view, right? But so then I thought, well, you know, I'm having trouble with this, and why don't I just look up safe safe area, right? So I thought, well, okay, let's see. It, this was not built. This was built in the old days when we did it in it with frame, and you know, you'd, you'd figure out what the size of the view was, and you'd, you'd basically build your your table view in code. And again, table views are like they're they're older than dirt on iPhone. Like I think I think Mark was saying, wasn't the first OS um, sort of thing was was table views back in old for, old phone pretty OS days? much? Yeah, I mean back in iPhone OS before it was even iOS. You know, like, I think iPhone OS two. You know, table views were kind of the thing that was the. And they kind of just worked, everything. right? You just set one up, you yeah. get you know, yeah. gave it some data and, a de- and gave it a data source and delegate set the delegates up, and you kind of got a table view for free. No, you know, special gymnastics or not even you could even do it without even visiting interface builder right mm-hmm. as long as you made it a table view controller you got all that sort of ui for free so here so but in this case here it's a, it's a standard view controller that i've put a table view into in code and i thought well here's an exercise for me let me go and try and find out how to do safe area in objective c in code mm-hmm. right and of course it's almost like back to going back to 2010 because there is no documentation on it i mean there's the apple documentation on it but you kind of got to read through it and, and uh, do that. And then, of course, I had to decide, you know, I have to be able to support the non-10 uh, series phones. So I have to have, you know, the trailing and leading and top and bottom uh, constraints. And then I, but then for the for the 10, for the anything that supports iOS 11 and up, um, I have to add in, I can add in the safe area, right? So, and what, what happened was, so I had this little if statement with the four sets of constraints in there. And for some reason, when I did the same kind of thing, I, I couldn't figure out the, the, left and right constraint when I'm using safe area I kept getting it was kind of weird because I was getting like an error even though one of the examples I, I found 
looked pretty straightforward to me. Um, and then the funny thing was once once I got the safe air working on the thing, I, I couldn't. I had to comment out the left and right. And then of course when I ran the app, the table view just didn't appear. So mm. so that's kind of my yeah. That's uh, struggle thing that has. I'm not exactly sure when that started happening, but it used to be if you had constraints wrong, it would just look kind of crazy when you're in the air. Wonky, yeah. Now it most of the time it just doesn't show up at all, which is which is even worse. It's I mean I guess it's a sign that something's wrong. It's a it's a strong yeah. sign that something's wrong, but it yeah. but it also doesn't. Get give you any clue about what's wrong right whereas it, it used to you could be able you could look at it and say oh okay it's just that one area that's wrong so i can focus in on that and figure out where, what, what's wrong with my constraint yeah yeah I, I do like the idea of you know if there's some constraint that has to be violated um just slamming stuff into zero zero in the upper corner was kind of a nice way to like see that one it's not invisible because that mm-hmm. could be a problem of like oh did i change the visibility on this what is there something else changed the visibility what's what's happening but having not appear at all and not know that it's you know way off the screen somewhere is harder to debug than just shoving it in the wrong spot like a clearly wrong spot like upper left hand corner or something Mm -hmm. right yeah yeah anyway so i I think i'm looking at the code right now i think i'm missing my uh, top and bottom for a safe area but yeah it was weird trying to figure out like because of course you know if you're i I don't want to use the visual was that visual language format where you you sort of do the h and the pipes and the yeah that's that's been not recommended for a couple years yeah the the layout anchors are pretty good now if you have to do the stuff in code the layout anchors yeah. are pretty good yeah that's what I'm using I'm using lay- I'm setting a layer margin guide yeah. and then um, using leading anchor trailing anchor top anchor bottom anchor right yeah yeah. so but I'm just looking at this I just noticed that I don't have anything for top and bottom for the for the uh, safe area part maybe that's what my problem was anyway so <laughs> this is, I was talking to Tammy about this earlier too and I, and I just thought well, why don't I just go and you know I have a I had, do have actually a nib with, with where I created that um, that little text view with a toolbar sort of faux toolbar i should just add a table view to that and be done with it you know and then set, then i can in the interface builder set up uh set up the the thing i need right oh somebody's sending me some safe area documentation mm-hmm. Wonder who. yeah i know yeah i looked at this yesterday this particular page too we'll add this to the show notes there's a thing called positioning content relative to safe area uh from apple is there some code examples here oh yeah there are okay cool yeah this is kind of sort of how i'm doing it but okay i'll have to give this a shot Edge insets. Oh, interesting. UI edge insets mm-hmm. in the code. All right. Well, that's our, our bit of code for today. Well, we'll there may be some more code later, but you know, like we say, more than just code. All right. Um, speaking of code, hey, there's look, there's more code. Um, the next post I have here, uh, I saw this on a tweet from James uh, James Thompson, who, um, as we all know and love, anytime there's a new interface or new OS or new platform or whatever, he always takes a run at run at it with pcalc. So he posted a tweet the other day that he had figured he there's a uh, tool here by I'm just remember who that I think Steve Stratton Smith um, came up with this uh, tool called yeah, Marzipanify and so you know he kind of goes through this article that I've got posted here in his blog from High Caffeine Content um, about how you know um, Marzipan would could work and what the kind of things you have to do and he starts listing off a bunch of bullet points and on how to get it up and running and then he just says well wait hang on a second try this instead and so he's he's introducing this this tool called marzipanify that uh, basically lets you take your uh your ios app and build it for mac and uh, of course so james thompson had a, a working copy or a video of a working copy of pcalc running on right running on uh, mojave so uh, interesting tool you guys have had a chance to look through this one at all or looking at it now looking at it now yeah it's interesting that there are folks who are out there reverse engineering and poking 
looking around to see how these things will work. Like the example there of the picker view and what it looks like on an iPhone versus what it would look like on a comparatively right. larger but still relatively small window on macOS. It's wild to see how these things like I, I think I have some of the same sort of concerns that a lot of people online and, and other podcasts have mentioned of like, hey, these are not you know, out of the box. They're not going to be uh, great Mac apps. But I, I think I come at it from the angle of like, but at least they will exist as opposed to uh, what do you want? You, you, you want more electron stuff? Do you do you like Slack? <laughs> do you want every app to be Slack <laughs> or just a web page? I mean, this is a, a pretty decent way to get more stuff on there. And I think um, I think there's a whole class of apps that will benefit from a somewhat larger audience that never would have uh, come to Mac because they're not going to try to take on the uh, omnis of the world who are like, you know, old hat and, and pretty professional at, at using both macOS and iOS, but the stumbling block to get on there for, as we mentioned earlier, the show, a comparatively smaller market wouldn't be there. And I think that's why people are using things like Electron. And I'm, I'm pretty excited for things like this. I mean, this is a, a workaround for um, whatever it is we're going to end up eventually getting officially from Apple, but it is pretty neat to sort of look at this and then see how it can be played with as terms of, you know, uh, can I take my iPhone SE style view <laughs> and make it somehow work on a big, uh, big uh, 6K video uh, monitor that, that's rumored? Yeah. I'm trying to find a link here. Where's the link to the GitHub? I was looking at it earlier. Uh, isn't this on GitHub? Or is it Panify? Hmm. I notice he's got a, a screenshot from, from PCalc in here as well. Kind of funny. Yep, so that's something to look forward to if you want to get in there and play with it. All right. Oh, look, it's our favorite people, Facebook again, in this next story. Um, this one's out of the Global Mail in Toronto. Um, yeah, this was on the news actually the other day too. Actually, uh, on the March third, which we're from March sixth, we're recording here today. That um, what's the headline here? Um, yeah, there was a, there's some some documents have come to light that uh, Facebook was planning to to build a, a new development center here in Canada, and um, they basically wanted to come in here and have uh, you know Canada stay hands off kind of thing on, on how they would handle data, right? Yeah, before we commit to opening a data center anywhere in the world, we want to make sure that we fully understand the country's laws, privacy protections, the company said in an email statement. This is not a threat to withhold investment on our part, but duty to protect people's data. Yeah, I don't know how to solve that sort of thing. I mean, Facebook here is coming off kind of like a big bully, so it's not a very good look for them. Uh, even if you assumed pretty good intentions, I think it'd be naive and silly to assume that there would be any sort of legally binding document that couldn't be pretty easily undone if a, a government entity wanted to change its mind. And I don't know how to solve the problem of, you know, it's a it's a hassle to deal with the legal aspects of data moved here to this particular server, and let's say it's in this particular country, like Canada, it, but it didn't move there because, oh, this is related to a Canadian citizen. It moved because, hey, uh, storage unit number 537 is full, so we need to move this from, uh, you know, the South Korean data center over to the Canadian data center just to, you know, distribute sure, data yeah. evenly. And now it's like, well, haha, now it's uh, under the purview of Canadian laws. It's like, well, that can, I can understand it. I mean, that's sort of how other goods and services in the physical world work. Um, but it seems kind of weird and silly in a network connected world. And I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to solve that. Like it, I can't really argue against it per se and be like, well, guess what? Facebook just 
and other cloud providers just you know do the less efficient thing to deal with the fact that the United States and China and Russia and South Korea apparently Canada surely you know uh, Japan and, and everybody else like everybody wants to try to treat uh, data as if it is sitting in the same area and certainly we've seen countries like the United States have felt very strongly like hey Microsoft you're an American company your Azure stuff that's sitting in Ireland we have access to that uh, right, through this yeah, legal yeah. rents like and, and I, I don't agree with that personally but I can I can understand the legal argument and I, I don't know how to resolve that well they're, they're probably sharding a lot of these databases so so they have multiple copies of all the data in different places uh, just because it, it you know makes it easier to and faster to access you know if you have the same data in a, a design center in in Seattle and another one in Toronto well if, if Tim needs to access something about that data even though it's got something something to do uh, with with Jaime who's in Seattle uh, it'll be faster for him to access it there uh, it, you know from Toronto so so it avoids any kind of network congestion. It, it avoids outages at different sites. Uh, so so I suspect that a lot of this data is in multiple places. They don't just keep stuff in the you know for users in the U.S. in the U.S. They keep it all over the place. So so I suspect this is this is uh, some somehow somewhat preemptive to to prevent some government from wanting access to all that data. It, it's I, I suspect it's probably not just Canada. Uh, it's any country where they would put a data center would would have this kind of issue, and and I'm, maybe I'm being a little uh, optimistic and and uh, optimistic about about Facebook that they're not trying to be malicious here, but but I but I get the feeling that it's 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 uh it's just because this they don't know where this data is going to be, so they don't want to have any kind of uh, future problems with any government having interest in that data. Right, you know, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. I, I do have a I thought of an analogy that goes back to the days of using DLT tapes. I don't know if you remember those, but um, you know, the challenge is, is that every country is going to have its own data data laws, and I think and and I think a, l- a little bit of the legislation that goes into laws around how data you know, we have different, you know, we've had some weird bills here in, in Canada about you know, internet privacy and whether you can whether you own something you download from the web, whether you, it's, you know, you have the legal right to have it or not. You know, for a while there we had a, a, a rule where you could download, you know, say like Game of Thrones from you know the internet and, and put it onto a, onto your hard drive at home, and because you were doing it for your own personal consumption at the time, that was still considered legal in Canada. That law changed a few years ago, but. Um, to sort of be in parity with what's happened in the U.S., but but you know, I used to have a customer that we used to have this this large data center, this large sort of it was like a silicon graphics you know um, storage where we would we would archive jobs to these DLT tapes, right? And you know, we would we would just have the we had this digital asset management system that would just you know we would just say I want to take this particular project and I want to you know, I want to archive it and it would go over to tape number one and when tape number one is full, full it would go to tape number two and so on and so forth right and we had an issue where um, uh, a, a disk that was used to to transport transport information between a client and and and, and our shop was uh, delivered to the wrong client. Right, and uh, that client got a bit upset about that, and they came to us and they said, "We want to make sure that our data is not stored on the same DLT tape at, with our competitor because we were we were dealing with you know companies that were considered could be considered competitors." 
So we had to go through and restructure our whole data stru- our whole our whole data thing and, and create new policies for people. So we had, you know, customer number one would get written to these set of tapes, and customer number two would get written to those set of tapes. And yet, you know, on on the hard drives that this that we were before we'd archive things on the hard drive, we have no idea where the data is actually being written on the drive, right? not until we actually take it away and, and sort of put it into library mode and, and archive it that we were able to sort of segregate the data. And I think that's kind of sort of the same sort of thing, but on a much larger scale that, you know, we can't, or Facebook or Google or Apple can't determine where, which drive anywhere in the world is going to store, you know, your resume or your, your photo of your kid, you know, right? I mean, it, it wouldn't necessarily be impossible, but it's definitely a lot more engineering to, to make that segregatable. And then you'd have questions of like, how flexible is the segregation depending on what's happening? And then even if you think you got that right, then you've got bugs that could crop in. And then now you've accidentally violated what you thought was... Uh, going to keep things nicely clean and separated. Yeah, but does that sure. mean that, that you can only store Canadian Facebook data in Canada and you can only store, you know, Iowanian um, Facebook data in Iowa, <laughs> California, Facebook data in California? It kind of defeats the whole purpose yeah, of, of the global speed, right? The economies of scale and all that, right? Yeah. I mean, the only thing I could think of is to have, like, internet-connected boats, d- data centers out there in international waters. <laughs> Just like in our example, with you and I chat on Facebook, just like in the waters in between the United States and Canada, just like right there at the international border, but in, in the international waters area. Um, obviously, they can't do that. And I'm being facetious for other areas that like you wouldn't be able to bounce everything out there. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, borders, national borders, they're arbitrary. And, and you know, take, take Europe, for example, they're constantly moving over there, right? So, you know, they've been pretty static here in, in North America, but... I think there was a TED talk on on how borders are just sort of there are arbitrary lines in the sand, right? And and data can't necessarily be you know you can't put a fence up in in, in a data center like in on a drive and say this partition is only for this this country and that partition is for that country, right? Mm-hmm. But you know it comes back to like you know yeah so so you know I think Facebook felt I guess that Canada Canada's rules or whatever weren't conducive to what they what they could or could were, were, what they were prepared to do I suppose right you know all right so shall we move on to our picks mm-hmm. all right so um, coming back to Apollo eleven um, uh, this is a cool little piece that I saw on Twitter um, one of my favorite shows from I guess from the nineties uh, I'm trying to think was this in the nineties or even the eighties when I used to watch this guy this guy named James Burke who's a British um, science journalist um, who had a show called Connections, which is you know, an amazing show. I don't know if, it, yep. if it's ever on. Love that any show. Sort of... I used to watch it all the time. Yeah, so there's this, this cool uh, video of him talking about how um, Werner Braun Baum came up with the idea of mixing hydrogen and oxygen to create this this amount of force uh, to make a rocket um, leave leave the Earth. And as I, as I think I was watching another TED Talk um, the other day, thanks to Facebook, actually, where I find these TED Talks, um, ironically. <laughs> uh, they were talking about you know the size of the the size of the tank of fuel that you need you know dictates the size of the rocket engine. Oh, it was actually it was on PBS. It was a show on on the uh, Saturn V rocket and the engines they made for them. But the amount of fuel you put into the rocket, um, you know, you have to take it takes a certain amount of energy to get like the larger the, the, the canister, the heavier the, the rocket, the further it's going to go. So there's this cool video here of him talking about how they used, they finally figured out the ratio of hydrogen and 
and oxygen to uh, take to lift a Saturn V, which is, you know, I think 600 in the video, in the movie they talked about, or sorry, in the Apollo 11 movie, I think they said it was 600,000 600, pounds or something like that. It was like really effing heavy, heavy uh, rocket and it would take quite a bit of effort to get it out, out, up into space, right? Um, anyway, so this in this clip, um, James Burke is walking beside the Saturn V and then as he finishes his sentence, he, ends up, he goes, you end up with something like this and he points to the launch pad and they, they blast off. It was, it was a satellite rocket they were blasting off. But the timing of that whole clip was just is amazing. It's about a minute and a half long. Mm. Um, there's a link here from Lionel Page on, uh, on Twitter for the show notes. So take a look at that. It's really enjoyable. How many takes do you think they had to do that? Well, it's interesting that it looks like one take. It looks like well, one of course, take. they can only do yeah. Yeah. They, they can only do one take. But but uh, there is a there is a there is a cut in in the in the, the the piece, right? I mean, the fact that he says you know the last little bit and then points to the rocket and blasts off that. I mean, he only had one chance to do that, right? Mm-hmm. But the other part where he's walking along and beside the Saturn V, he could have uh, recorded that a number of times, right? Yeah, I'm watching it now for the second time just to see if I can see where they cut it. Yeah, there's so many amazing things I learned on that show, like the where the color purple came from. Did you ever watch that one, Mark? Do you remember that story? I don't, I don't remember that one. I don't. So purple purple dye used to be really hard to make, right? And so that's why it was the color of kings because because it, it, it was you know it had to be you know practically royal to be able to afford it. Mm-hmm. So that's why kings had purple capes and things like that. And they were burning coal you know, coal black in in lamps. I think it was right. And it would it would have this black residue that would would um, when when the off gassing or the, the combustion would would coat the glass and they would have to clean it. And apparently someday one day somebody took the coal black and threw it into water like in the river or whatever, and it turned purple. Mm. And that's how they figured out how they could use a mechanical method to make purple dye. Mm. And it came down in price. <laughs> so this Anyways, this so- show must have been on longer ago than I remember, because I'm looking at, at this clip from 1969, which is 50 years ago, and yeah. the guy looks pretty much exactly as I remember him looking in the show. Maybe a little bit younger, yeah, yeah. but certainly not 40 years younger. So it must have been in the 80s or, or something. When- well, it must be because, I mean, this, this, is, this is Florida, clearly, because that's where they have the Saturn V on its side. But the rocket yeah. that takes off, I mean... That could have been any time in in you know the whole space shuttle era, right? Well, it says in the well, it says in the title of the of the tweet, it's covering live the Apollo Eleven mission from the BBC. Yeah, yeah, but who knows? Yeah, but yeah, but it must it must have been late sixties, early seventies for sure. Yeah. So. But if you step back, it comes from this Blue Dot company, which or Blue Dot um, Blue Dot Festival, which is celebrating the fiftieth anniversary. That's where that uh, hmm. original clip is sourced from. All right, I'm doing a Google search now. All right, get some real time follow up here. <laughs> Oh, you're looking at James, Connections? James connections, Burke? yeah. Original release, 1978. Wow. No way. Really? Yep. Well, but yep. yeah, but we wouldn't have seen it in, the, in Canada or in the United States at that time. We would have probably seen it in, re- in repeats. Probably right? that's true. Yeah. Okay. He did three of them. He did Connections in 1978, Connections Squared in 1994, and then Connections right. Cubed in 1997. 97. Definitely a, a break in between them, in between the first one and the second one, at least. Yeah, they're great shows. Oh, uh, no, yeah, 94. Hmm. But still, that the last one would have been 30 years after that clip. He didn't age too much, it doesn't look like. Yeah. Well, you know, probably if I watch it now, 
now I'd be like, oh wow, he looks a lot older than I remember. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. I thought there was a, what, what episode did it say this uh, clip was from? Well, we can oh, buy it, it on it, DVD. He said it. This wasn't from Connections. It said it was from. Well, it, from actually, it didn't say it wasn't from Connections, but it, it just it's it just says he's covering live the Apollo Eleven mission for the BBC. So it sounds like he was just doing it as a journalist. But that wasn't Apollo Eleven that blasted off. That's what the that's how I found it was. People were complaining that it wasn't Apollo Eleven. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, because the rocket, if you look at it, it's not that's not a Saturn V rocket taking off, hmm. right? And I don't think that they, they they didn't park the Saturn. They, I think that the Saturn uh, rocket that's parked on its side in Florida was one of the ones from the canceled missions, right? Because they only did Apollo seventeen was the last Apollo mission. Hold on, I'm listening to what he's saying here. It says destination the moon. Yeah, or yeah, but if you listen, he says or or Moscow, Moscow. or yeah, Peking, yeah, yeah, whatever that means. So he's not he's not uh, specifically saying. Hmm. Anyway, we can argue about that forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the next uh, piece I have here is uh, I don't know if you heard, but um, our buddy Dave Abrams and uh, a guy named Tony Alavado is that Alavado? Is he the guy who took over from um, uh, Chris Latner at Apple? Don't know. You guys yeah, I'm not know. sure. I'm taking a. Uh, uh, his GitHub profile says he was a staff software engineer at Google. Oh, Google. In Kirkland, okay. In Kirkland, Washington. So. Anyway, they, they've um, they proposed a new um, tool for cleaning up or prettifying your your Swift code called Swift hyphen format, um, and so they're proposing to release this tool. And um, there's a discussion about Apple making this uh, become more standard. So of course, uh, Matt Triple T Thompson has written a uh, piece on NS Hipster uh, called Swift Code Formatters, and he goes through um, he picks uh, four Swift uh, formatters that uh, we may or may not. Be familiar with and runs them through the same uh, piece of code and sees what, how it comes out and what it looks like. So Nick Lockwood's uh, Swift format, um, Realm, who's produced Swift Lint, which is in uh, use in a lot of different places. Um, and there's a thing called Prettier with Swift plugin, which is a, um, which is a, I think a Java tool. Um, and, um, and of course the, the proposed Swift format uh, piece that uh, Dave Abrams and Tony Alvialetto are behind. Um, so it's kind of interesting thing. I don't know if you guys had a chance to scan through this document. I hadn't had a chance to read it prior. I'm, I'm scanning now, but I had seen uh, some of the news headlines around right. mm-hmm. people discussing this and like, is it is it the right time and other bits. I think my take on it is that assuming the formatter has some sort of, um, you know, pretty sensible defaults and then yep. you can customize based on your team's particular needs. I think it'd be great to have. I, I really would like to not have to worry about manually um, mm-hmm. aligning things. It's like, let me just write it as best I can and have the formatter correct it for me and make it pretty and easy to read. Right. Yeah, I mean, like looking at the two the, the examples I've I've had a look at, I think that the um, uh, which was the one I liked the best from a readability point of view. Um, you know, I like the way that they they line up the the vars and the and the things in in the um, in the initializers, right? Oh, that's so, kind of sort of which that they. I'm looking at the uh, the which one is this? Oh, I see. Sorry, sorry. Okay, I was looking at the before and saying what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's all weird. Like eh? I stepped out yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't have a scare step option in your your. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here's a question for you guys along the, the lines of formatting Swift code. Mm-hmm. So say you have an if let statement where the the if part of it goes on to multiple lines before the you know before the squiggly bracket and the and the and the body of the of the if statement starts. How do you how do you indent that? So do you mean like like you got if let blah 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 comma let blah 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 yeah. comma let, let blah blah blah, 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 blah comma. comma yeah yeah hmm. it's interesting yeah do you, do you 
indent, you line the lets up, the word let? Well, the, the problem is that uh, if you just use Xcode's regular, uh, you know, hit return uh, method, you know, to, for, for aligning, uh, what it does is it aligns the lets with the, the second lines of lets with the code inside the bracket. Oh. So it doesn't indent the code with respect to those lets. It does with res- with respect to the first if, mm-hmm. the, first, the first, you know, the first line of the if. So it, like, mm. so if you do a comma and then you, are you putting a soft return in there or? Yeah, hit, you hit return after the comma. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then so it, it so it does it, li- so it lines it up with the beginning of the line or? So you, you, you type your first if let statement, right. comma, right. hit return. It will indent the next let. Then you write a line, comma, hit return, another let. And then at the end of that one, you have the, the squirrel the squiggly bracket hit right, return yeah, yeah. it will align the inside the body of the of the of the if statement inside the squiggly bracket uh with one indent from the original if which is the same mm-hmm. position as all those other lets right right so if you're looking at it it's it's hard to see that those lets are part of the original if statement as opposed to right code. yeah yeah hmm. you get used to yeah. it but it's i always thought that was kind of a weirdness yeah this is the stuff that starts fisticuffs. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like, an irrational uh, champion and supporter of guard as a statement. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. So I, I try to tease out some of those into guards that, oh, okay, I really don't care about this. I'm just trying to make sure it's non-optional, right? And then even if I have to do a couple different steps to get into what what sets of things are non-optional, and then I can do uh, an if-let where even if it's two let pieces, it's fit within um, like the same line, you know, on an 80 character width sort of imaginary boundary. I feel like that's a a way you might be able to approach it. But if you really, really do have a bunch of lets in there that are required and you can't tease them out in any sensible fashion without making the problem worse for readability, I don't know that I really like that alignment that you're talking about. I feel like I would be a little confused. And it makes me wonder if if some of this would be uh, like make some method calls or something. Um, Because I I don't know. You're right. The way that aligns, it would be difficult. Yeah, it's just a weird... To just see like, oh, this thing is all related to this other thing without some like fancy code call or something. Mm-hmm. Yep, interesting. Yep. All right. Well, my next uh, pick here is, um, and this is from our friends over at Mac Stories, or um, is it Frederico Fedici, or is it? Uh, yes, it is. Um, it's basically a shortcuts archive. So they've gone through and picked up uh, a bunch of different archive or shortcuts and categorized them into different kind of things. So they've got App Store shortcuts, Calendar shortcuts, Email, Evernote files, JavaScript, Mac shortcuts, Markdown shortcuts, Music photos task management, I'm just reading some of them, time tracking, weather, and uh, then of course some miscellaneous ones. And these are examples that uh, you can get, if you do it on your iPhone, you can click on these links and, and load them right up into your shortcuts. Um, you know, I'm looking at a weight tracker, so I use uh, I downloaded the weight tracker one. Um, a couple other ones I might take a look at are, of course we've got the what's the best podcast one that we do, right? I mean, um, so you I do have it. I don't think it's on this list, but I know we do have one. Like um, you know, compressed File, Dropbox files, um, attach them to an agenda, create a PDF, all kinds of different things. I don't know if you've seen any things you guys like. It's a pretty here. big list. I'd, I'd have to yeah. really sit and read through that. Do you have any that you've uh, picked up on and maybe even tried to use so far? I might try the glass of water one. That looks interesting because you want to. And there's like there's one here for logging the amount of coffee you drink, right? Huh. Um, check how much water you've drunk today. Um, hmm, video speed up. If you want to speed up your video, a video you're watching. Wake your Mac and log it in from your phone, from your watch, I guess, or from your phone. I guess published to WordPress. There you go. There's one. I'm assuming these are these are uh, shortcuts that people have added to their apps. Looks into the apps, right? 
Share Dropbox photo. Never going to use that one. <laughs> Apple Frames iOS only. What's this? Add device frames to screenshots. Oh, look at that. You can add uh, you can add um, different phone devices to your, uh, if you have a screenshot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's two of them here. Wait, there's one for Mac and one for iOS? I don't get it. That looks interesting, though. OCR with Prismo Go. <laughs> Maybe there should be a shortcut for Marzipanify. It's like, what would my iPhone <laughs> SE look like <laughs> on a large 6K television or monitor? Right. Yeah. Create hyperlink. That'd be handy if I was publishing the uh, podcast from uh, my watch or my phone. Tweet songs, open Twitter app, get the weather report going there. Is, there's some sort of useless ones there. Well, useless to to me, to us at least. Uh, one called yeah. Electricity Price. Uses the common <laughs> hour average electricity price API for Northern Illinois to return the average price of electricity for the current hour in US dollars. Mm. Can't really imagine I feel being that useful. Like that one was bespoke to obviously folks in that region, but who were also doing cryptocurrency mining. Mm. Oh, Turn on their mining materials when it was like, oh, look, it's cheapest right now between 2 and 5 a.m. So here's one that totally fits this this program. Convert temperature between Fahrenheit and Celsius. Mm, There you go. (laughs) But how about miles per hour to kilometer ridge per hour? I know. Yeah. (laughs) Liters per (laughs) miles, whatever. Liter per kilometer. Yeah. Make PDF from Safari links. Start your work day. That's it. If you're working from home, that may be handy. You could use your home kit to set your lights up and stuff like that. Hey, I saw that electricity when you were just talking about search pocket. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So anyway, good, good selection. We'll have this link in the show notes for people. For those of you driving at home, right, Jaime? Indeed. And then, uh, so the last one is yours, Jaime. Yeah, these are the uh, conference videos for serverside.swift, which just took place, well, I guess it took place a little while ago in September of 2018 in, in Berlin, in Germany. Uh, but the videos are up there for the server-side Swift uh, topics that were there. Like, uh, no surprise, Vapor and Katura are on there. Um, I might listen or watch this uh, Swift's encoder and decoder protocols because I, you know, I do mm-hmm. use those, mm-hmm. but it's kind of good to get a little refresher yeah. to make sure I'm not missing yeah. anything. Yeah. Uh, looks like people have information on uh, running small microservices in Swift on the production environments. I'm very curious on people's experience with using that. Oh, look, there's even another one, Vapor in production, how to convince the client. Mm. And then probably the one that is the furthest afield from what I typically do, but looks very interesting from a hobbyist and enthusiast standpoint is the Swift NIO on the Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious how that works, that uh, higher, um, I don't know if it was a higher speed or a higher concurrency networking framework for, for Swift, the Swift NIO. I can't remember which it does, but it, it, it does networking gooder. It's the, the key thing <laughs> to take away from that. Right. Interesting. Cool. Yeah. And, and just for completeness, because I see it on their website, if you are interested in the 2019 edition, it looks like you can save the date, October 30th through November 1st, not in Germany, this time in Copenhagen, Denmark. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're making their way around the, around the European Union, I guess. Around the globe. Going to be international like us. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to think of it that way. Uh, yeah. You know, our, our cultures are so similar that it, it's hard to tell the difference at times. And then we'll mm. run right up against a, a cultural barrier wall that reminds us that we do sit on different sides of a, of a line in the sand, as yeah. you described earlier. That's true. Well, we're, we're actually on three continents today. It's true. No, we're not. No, two continents. Two continents. Three oh, countries. crap. <laughs> <laughs> One hemisphere, two continents. Well, two continents is more than normal, right? That's true. That's Very true. Good. That's true. Yeah. More than just two continents. More than just one continent. All right. 
Um, so I guess that's it for the week. So, uh, hey, Mark, if people want to get in touch with you, how do they do that? Mark R at smapsoft.com. All right. And Jaime, how would people get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter as at Dev with the Hair. So will you still be in um, Japan on Saturday? Yes, I'm actually. Well, oh, wait, your Saturday? Uh, yeah. Yes, because I'm flying back on Sunday. So I will leave on Sunday from Japan and arrive in the United States on Sunday. So if you hurry, you can probably catch Jaime in <laughs> Tokyo. <laughs> if, you're, if you're chilling in the, in the Tokyo area, I have no idea what our uh, listenership is like. But yeah, I, I leave kind of later in the evening on Sunday. So if you'd oh, like to meet. Provided I get or, this out on time too, right? Or, or chit chat at Haneda Airport where I will be. <laughs> we can meet up and I would be uh, very, uh, I would be tickled pink, as they say, of like, oh my gosh, that'd be so crazy to run into a fan here in uh, in the Far East. Did you bring any uh, swag with you? I do have t-shirts and yeah. stickers and pins that right. I brought to, to hand out at, at the conference. Um, I guess if I have anything left over, I might be able to, to give stuff other than I like would that, have to yeah. give the shirt off my back because I'm wearing the, uh, the red <laughs> key outline for the actual presentation on oh, Saturday. Okay. Right. Um, so if you don't mind it dirty, I might be able to give you that one. <laughs> you can take it home and wash it or, or, or maybe not. Maybe it's like, um, we can we can recreate the uh, Mean Joe Green Coca Cola ad yeah. where I, you give me a Coke and I toss you my jersey. So. <laughs> right, right, cool. All right, I guess until next week we'll say bye bye. Bye bye. If you want to find out more about the podcast or see the episode show notes, visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. You can get in touch with us on the website or follow us on Twitter at mtjc underscore podcast. If you have feedback or questions, send us a tweet with the hashtag AskMTJC. If you like the show, please consider recommending us to a friend, writing a review on iTunes, or pledging any amount at patreon.com slash mtjc. You can find details on how to help us out on our website at mtjc.fm slash sponsor us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. How long have you been in Tokyo or in Japan? Uh, let's see here. It is Thursday here, and I've been here. Yeah. I just arrived on Monday, so just a, a handful of days. Yeah, mm. like four days. So time check. What time is it there? It is 12.42 p.m. on Thursday, March 7th, from my perspective. Okay. Yeah, so you're, you're in the future by about, I don't know, 10 hours maybe? I think it's like 12. I always think of it as 12 plus like 2 to 4, I think. Yeah, that's what yeah, happened. It's too. tomorrow already. You're you're ahead of me and Mark. We're we're behind you right now. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So, so I had to think really hard um, to say, okay, they've got this thing scheduled for the speakers. Is that going to conflict with recording? Like, oh, it, it definitely conflicts with Spotcast, but mm-hmm. it's a different day than MTJC for me, so that worked out fine. Well, what time are you? What time is? Um, yeah, because we record. We we can record earlier for Spotcast because you're not here. But what? Because uh, we don't record at the same time. It would be like ten o'clock, I guess, right? 
yeah, it, it's a little questionable because I'm like, well, where am I going to be out and about? And, and today yeah. in particular, I was like, yeah, I'm kind of tired. I'll snooze in a little bit, go to the local uh, Lawson's convenience store, yeah. get this special um, karaage. It's basically like fried chicken, but chicken nuggets. Uh, not like McDonald's chicken nuggets, but more like um, like a tempura. If you've ever had that at a Japanese restaurant, yeah, it's yeah. that kind mm-hmm. of like flakier, lighter thing. And then it's, like, just, the, it's like a uh, tonkatsu kind of crust chicken chicken katsu kind of thing it's you know not as uh as bready with the panko style but yeah I, I, the the flavor is more like that but the the texture the lightness is more like tempura so it's got this had more um uh, more of a, a deeper flavor profile than you get with tempura if that makes sense it, it felt more like a japanese interpretation of american chicken nuggets is how i describe it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. interesting so but just what's the name of the what's the name of the province or area you're in i'm in oh. Nihonbashi. Do you say Tokyo Nihonbashi, Japan? Or would you say Tokyo in the Nihonbashi region? I think in the Nihonbashi region. And <laughs> that might even be an ask, hashtag AskMTJC if there's any listeners in Japan yeah. who can correct us. Sure. Um, okay. I don't we'll think it's like a province. It's, they do have like a thing that they call wards. And I don't know what wards are. I don't mm-hmm. understand the term and how it differs. So that's why I just said like neighborhoods. Right? Like Seattle has uh, neighborhoods like Fremont and Belltown and South Union where Amazon right. is. Right, yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 And, and Toronto has those as well, I'm sure. The Bay Area definitely has those, yeah. uh, depending where you're talking about. So, close yeah, as I can get yeah. Tokyo is just so enormously huge that that these these neighborhoods, if you want to call them, are, are, are pretty big. They're like almost cities unto themselves. Yeah, and it's it's so different. So, I'm, I mentioned I'm in a what I believe to be a central, you know, central business district area because mm-hmm. there's a lot of tall office towers. The people I see walking around are decked out pretty nicely, very professionally. Nothing uh, other than a convenience store is in a handful of like tiny mom and pop uh, noodle shops. Nothing opens up before 11. It's like clearly meant for really? lunchtime. People come out and then it is dead <laughs> at like 5 or 6 p.m. when they when they get out and people go elsewhere to, to drink, I would guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also uh, it, it just feels more businessy, if that makes sense. It, mm-hmm. like, you don't mm-hmm. see like a whole lot of uh, uniqueness. It's like, yeah, everybody kind of has like a, like a work uniform, uh, Wall Street style sort of thing. And it's completely different than if you go to like uh, Shibuya, where there's tons of tourists. If you go to um, Harajuku, which is pretty famous for the mm-hmm. like the, the weird teenage fashion sort of stuff. And that there is completely overwhelmed with, with teenagers. It, it was shocking how, how different it was. Like, I don't know that I saw any adults for like the longest time. <laughs> it was very kind of concerning. Like, like I would be like on a government watch list in the United States states if i went to this area sort of thing <laughs> have you checked out akihabara yet yeah that one was definitely on my list and it's not that far it's it's pretty close to yeah, where i'm at it's like yeah. one or two train stops and it's just like every anime manga sort of thing you've ever thought of or right. ever could conceive of exists there um, and even a whole bunch of western toy product type stuff is there like i took pictures of uh some star trek enterprise stuff like a, like a model kit that's there there's like these little weird um heads 
I don't even know what they are. They, they look like tiny little statue quality, but like, like they were 3D printed or like they're made to go on like a type of Barbie doll sort of plastic that are celebrities. Like I was like, oh, that's Wesley Snipes. That's Josh Brolin. <laughs> you know, it's like oh, really? wow. uh, this other dude who I don't recognize, but he's from that one movie of uh, where he's the, the lawyer or PR person for the big smoking executive companies. I'm like, I don't know that dude's name, but I totally recognize him. Oh, the guy from the guy from um, the Dark Knight. Yes, yes, he was. Um, he was Two Face. Two Face, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, and and Aaron, also Aaron something. Aaron Aaron something. Anyway, doesn't matter. Yeah, we can do some fact check on that one. And then they yeah. also had a whole bunch of what I assume are used um, products of like like things that came out of vending machines, or in some cases things that were from the West, like uh, little Star Trek Enterprise that put together plastic toys, like an Enterprise D that like separates not just saucer separation, but it also like the the engines come off and stuff. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this, this is pretty pretty cool. Should I get these? I was like, holy smokes, two thousand. That's like twenty bucks, dude. This thing is like three inches at best. It's not not a very large yeah. sort of thing. But um, I guess if you wanted to to corner the market on, remember those first Star Wars toys, not the original seventies ones, but the ones that came back right. in the nineties when the special edition were about to come out for the original trilogy. Yeah, they have like all of those, from what I can tell. So I, I feel like you could come corner the market, just buy them all for an absurd amount of money and then just put them in an underground cavern in, in Nevada or something and just wait out, you know, like people dying off or, or losing these things. Well, this, those things show up in, in, we have our fan expo here. They show up there. Like you, if you go to the, some of the booths, you'll see like, you know, you see the North American Star Wars or Hasbro swag or whatever, but you'll also see these really intricate, detailed, slightly different scale um, Star Wars stuff that are definitely from Japan. And of course, they're marked up like gazillion dollars, whatever. I was going to say, like, could you just stock up on stuff like while you're there, like swag and, and toys and things like that? Yeah, and there's even like some sort of duty free uh, tax system that if you like collect a whole bunch of stuff and and it doesn't include consumables like you know candies and things, you can somehow export these things tax free. Um, and it, it's weird. I didn't understand the system. It seems like it involves handing it off to somebody else, and maybe they make the purchase. I'm not really yeah, it's sure. Like a Brokerage. Or yeah, whatever. I'm not sure how it works. Um, and just given my almost complete lack of uh, understanding of Japanese, both written and spoken, um, it's been very weird for me coming to a country where uh, I can speak at like the level of like an eight month yeah. <laughs> old child, <laughs> and I'm effectively illiterate, except for the saving grace that there sometimes is a little bit of English, and at the very least, they use the same uh, numerals that we do, so I can understand how much something costs. Other than yeah, that, are you dealing with signage and stuff like that? Is there like any English at all, or is it all you have to learn it? Well, for the the subway system, which is outstanding, like I have a hard time believing anybody in the world has something better than this. Because here I am coming in, I don't speak the language, I don't know the areas. There is uh, signage in both Japanese and English, but everything is very uh, patternized and regularized. Where I could say, okay, these sorts of signs tell me where the exits are. These sorts of signs tell me where the different lines are. And the lines have very specific names. They have very specific colors. They also have stop number designations like uh, this is the the Ginza line. You're on G11 and where you're trying to get to is G7. So, okay, just do the math. That's how many spots that you need to go. And you just need to make sure you get on the correct um, the correct platform. You're not going in the wrong direction. Well, I'll, I'll right. give you a tip though. That's, that's definitely true in the bigger stations and especially if you're on the, the Japan Railroad, which is the, the main ring around the city. That kind of goes everywhere. That's absolutely true. But uh, I don't know if you've discussed 
discovered this and maybe other people don't know, but Tokyo is kind of interesting because there's not just one subway. There's multiple subway lines and many of many of them are privately owned. So the, the main one is uh, is a government run one. That's a Japan railroad. But there's other ones, smaller ones that just go to one little part of the city that are privately owned, interestingly enough. And, and sometimes the only way to get to a certain place is to get off the main uh, subway and take one of these smaller subways. And I found out the hard way that when you do that and you go to some of the smaller stations, uh, all of a sudden there's no English anymore. <laughs> yeah, that that would be challenging for sure. Yeah, um, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that part of it because it, it feels I haven't to be fair I haven't gone to the places you just described, but it feels so seamless in terms of getting around because I'm pretty sure I have gone on some of the private lines. Um, I have seen some that were definitely JR, but some other ones that I believe were smaller private lines. Yeah, and it pretty much didn't matter to me because. I'm using the Suica card. Uh, there's also Pasmo as like a, a reloadable card. And I was wise enough to add that to my Apple wallet. So mm, it, mm, mm, it, it can be reloaded yeah. via Apple Pay. So, you know, ah, from the toilet or yeah. in a restaurant or, you know, just on the street corner, I can just add more money if I need it. And it has a transit mode that I did not know existed for anything because I don't have anything like that in the U.S. Is It assumes that you don't want to use face ID or touch ID and that you're just going to tap at the terminal. Mm. So it's just like tap, it reads the NFC chip and then just like walk through it. It gives me a little yeah. happy uh, ding sign. And well, it's, it's been a long time since I've been there uh, and to tell you how long it's been, it was, I didn't even own a smartphone, I don't think, last time I was in Japan. So so things may have changed quite a bit for sure. Yeah, I, I think you would. And, and you know what? With with an Now that I think about it, with an iPhone and Google Maps or whatever, or, or whatever you have, yeah, it would probably be relatively simple to do to, to figure out where you are at any given time okay let's let's come back to that one because i have strong opinions about that <laughs> and uh, you're right okay. it has been helpful so yeah. the the apple and apple wallet thing is interesting because the the suica card like you have to buy like a physical one to start with unless you do like their app but their app is not translated into english even though it's in available in the u.s store i didn't want to go that route so i went to go you know buy a physical card and then you just add the card to your wallet uh, through like normal wallet stuff and it transfers the value you by holding the card against the phone for like 15 seconds. It's it's so slick and it's interesting that there are so many different shops and vendors and even vending machines that you can use the Suica on your iPhone to just pay for stuff. So um, when I'm not using cash, I use Suica as as much as possible. Mm. Um, Now, when it comes to getting around, you're right. Google Maps is super helpful to show you like where you're at, you know, in the region roughly. Mm -hmm. And it is pretty good at transit directions, like way better than Apple Maps. Like Apple Maps would say like, Oh, like get on this line, go to this station. And Google goes further and says, go in through entrance B1, exit out of Charlie 12 on the other end. So it's not like, um, it's not like a, a, a huge difference, it seems, but it, it's such a nice quality of life thing to not have to guess like, all right, if, if I go the wrong direction, that I just cost myself another five to 10 minutes of walking back the other way once I get out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but the, the location for GPS has been annoying me and I don't know what to blame. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm normally using Verizon. I'm paying for their little travel pass thing to use my normal data plan while I'm here. So I don't get uh, you know bankrupted by the data charges um, for international roaming. And it's roaming with Dokomo, which uh, their name is a pun, you know, Dokomo, which means, you know, everywhere, mm-hmm. uh, kind of implying like, hey, like their thing coverage is everywhere. I know just enough Japanese to call it Dokodaka, which is, where is it? 
Yeah. I said, where the hell am I? Because I would stand in a street corner and watch my little blue dot shift 100 meters in one direction and then jump maybe 20 meters in another. And I had no clue. I got so lost the first day or two because I thought, oh, I'm heading in this direction. And I didn't know where I was. Um, so I've ended up using the maps as a sort of like, all right, generally, this is where I want to go, like the area that's around me. And then I use the blue dots um, arrow to figure out which direction am I facing? Because at least the compass works flawlessly. So I say, all right, I'm getting out of this station here. And it's roughly northeast from where I'm at. So just continue walking, you know, face northeast and then continue walking that direction until I see some landmarks or something that show up on Google Maps. I, I have no idea. I, I have no idea how... It, it was so weird getting, like, you know, uh, accustomed to, oh, this doesn't work as magically as it does for me in the United States. And I don't know if that's because of weirdo mobile network problems here in Japan or if it's somehow related to, oh, uh, American iPhones don't have the right sort of uh, radios that are slightly different from compatibility with Japanese networks or something. Hmm. I'd have to like maybe get somebody to be like, hey, stand here with your Japanese iPhone. Let's show a route and let's see where it takes us sort of thing and compare and contrast. Right. Cool. So I'm just looking at a map of Tokyo just before we get started on the show because we should, probably should record a podcast. Um, this is the podcast. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm going to use a lot of this stuff. Trust I'm just me, but... into the after show. So, so is there like a major, like I'm looking at the map here and I can't find the region you're talking about, but is there like a major landmark near you somewhere? You see the, the big green thing right, kind of right in the middle of Tokyo? The Imperial Palace? Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much right by where he is. Really? I think. Right down there? Is that, isn't that right, Hammy? Imperial Palace. No, uh, here, well, I guess it depends what map you're looking at. Are you looking at Google Maps so I can look at the same I'm thing? I'm looking at Apple Maps. All right, let me fire up Apple Maps. Yeah, I see it right here. So you're near Kanda Station, right? Kanda Station. Let me see. I don't... Uh... Shin Honbasha Bashi. Um, so... Between Tokyo Station and Kanda Station. Tokyo Station and Kanda, Kanda. Uh, I know I've, I definitely have walked past Kanda. So Kanda is to the north of Nihonbashi and Ginza, yep. or maybe Shinbashi, because it looks like it's a little larger on here, mm -hmm. are to the, is to the south of me. Oh, okay. You're, yeah, okay. A little bit further south. I found Nihonbashi here on, yeah, it's, it's the Tokyo train station, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So the Imperial Palace is kind of the big green area right, at, right to the west of Tokyo Station. Right. Yeah. And he's yeah. east of that. You're just east of that, yeah. Yeah, I see. I see like a little signpost here. You zoom in a bit more. Yeah, I see. I see Nihonbashi here. Is one word, right? Mm -hmm. Near the Pokemon Center. Yeah, I actually did go to the Pokemon Center <laughs> DX. <laughs> oh, um, Nihonbashi. Yeah, Imperial Palace looks close, but that's just because like how large that area is. Mm. Um, it's it's really not that close, and yeah. I would have to take the lines to get there. Yeah. Right. This is a screenshot for the show. So where I used to stay when I I've been to Tokyo twice, and both times I stayed in Shinagawa, which is a little bit south. Uh, kind of yeah. follow, mm -hmm. follow the water down south, and and you and it's kind of right down there. So it says eleven degrees on the uh, on the map. I guess that's where the temperature is there, Jaime. That's uh, uh, Celsius. Yes, fifty-one degrees Fahrenheit, huh. according to my Apple Watch. Right, cool. But you're still in the northern hemisphere, right? Yes. All right. It's getting cold here. It's crazy cold. Yeah, it's been cold here. Yeah. Cold and rainy. Mm. I saw in the in very sad news today, I saw in my Twitter feed that Alex Trebek has pancreatic cancer. Oh yeah. Oh really? Stage four and he, he put out a, a YouTube video. It's like a minute and a half where he said, you know, in, in continuing with his being very open and transparent about his life and because he didn't want uh, news to leak out there and then get overblown. He's like, you know, odds are bad, but I'm going to fight this. And then he even makes a little joke at the end mm. on that. Uh, his, his contract requires him to be there for another three years. So he's going to at least do that. 
So uh, kind of a dark moment there, but yeah, yeah. I guess they, Luke, Joe Perry, right? Or is it Joe Perry or Luke, Luke Perry? Yeah. From yeah, 90210. Perry, yeah. And it's crazy because they were just talking about having some sort of 90210 reunion special, I think like, mm-hmm. like five or six episodes on Netflix or some other streaming channel, I think. Right. Right. Yeah. More crazy. Cause he's only a year older than I am. Yeah. I, I didn't see the specific news. Did they describe like, did he have a stroke? I, yes. I understand like how he died, but was it like, Oh, random freak accident or like, Oh yeah. You know, it turns out his family has a, a history of, of strokes or heart disease or some other like genetic type thing or yeah. Hard to say. Yeah. Hard to say. I, um, my uh, my body is breaking down here as I normally live a very relatively <laughs> sedentary lifestyle working from home. I'm uh, just walking around everywhere here. Yeah. And my my left ankle was really hurting me, so I went mm. to the the convenience store to buy some some wrap and just wrap my uh, my ankle like a like an athletic injury. Sure. Yeah. So we'll see how that goes today. Do they have, have like proper pharmacies and stuff there? <laughs> of course they do. As far as I could tell, they're, they're I just a like nice country, Tim. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, like, the, like I mean, like you know, you have got Walgreens, and we have uh, we have um, Shoppers Drug Mart and stuff like that. Yeah, they're just yeah, they do. stores I've never heard of, you know, and limited a uh, little bit of access to English. I just kind of look oh. for pictures of like, all right, this is the thing that that you would wrap around your hands. I can use that around my ankles too. Right. Okay. Hmm. This might work today. Who knows? I'm just playing with this, these uh, layout anchors again. Nope. Still getting undeclared guide. Oh, guide. Wait. What the heck? Yeah, I do feel like with the layout. Anchor, Anchors and stack views, you pretty much have what you need for layout that would mostly, and maybe even in all cases, take over the visual format language you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of what you would, what would be easier to do that would be worth giving up the, the compiler helping you out. Right. I'm sure there's something that I haven't thought about. Like there isn't like a one true answer to auto layout, but I'm struggling to think what it is. But now that I'm looking at this again from today, it's, I see what I did wrong yesterday. I was a bit punchy when I got to this part. <laughs> See what happens. Maybe if I get a view, I'll be happy. Well, the nice thing about using Interface Builder is you can see right in the screen if there's something wrong. Yeah, you know, it yeah. tells you that there's you know, it, it, with with the with the red markers that some some constraints are conflicting or or aren't set. Well, I'm getting the red markers in code here, but uh, oh well, <laughs> oh there are actually errors. But um um yeah, and I've got that reveal engine running on this Mac still. So if I, I want to go look at the layout, I can look at and I can tweak things. I can move them around, and that's what I like about uh, reveal as opposed to the visual debugger. Can yeah. you move things in? No, you can't. Visual debugger. Visual okay. debugger is nice, but it but it is kind of limited with what you can do. Static, yeah. 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 I think I think what the problem was I was getting before was I getting uh was actually crashing. Let's see if it works today. Like I was getting a. Uh, that lib C++ error. Oh, I got a table. Woo-hoo. Oh, the lib C++ error is, I've seen that often if you have a constraint set to a negative number, like a, mm-hmm. width or a height constraint. So if you're calculating the width of the height of something and setting the constraint in code, yeah. and you happen to get a negative number for some reason, uh, then the app will crash. Mm. It didn't used to do that for iOS 12, but it does now in iOS 12 very repeatedly. Well, it worked. I got the whole thing, but I've lost my toolbar because I'm overriding it. How do I set a constraint against that? Well, at least I figured out the, what the syntax error I was dealing with was yesterday. Small things. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, I got to get going because it's late here. What time is it there? It's uh, 2 o'clock, Kami? Yeah, 2.20. Not late here at all. If you want to go for another <laughs> five hours, let's do it. <laughs> Funny, yeah. Oh, that's what I wanted to ask you. So can you actually get Spotcast? Or sorry, can you actually get um, CBS All Access out there or Netflix or something? That's a good question. Uh, it, Netflix looked weird to me, and I wonder if it is because I'm, I'm attaching through the 
um, through the hotel Wi-Fi or just because of where it picks up my region. Oh, I do, I do actually have my region set to, to Japan because that was the only way to yeah. add the Suica card to my Apple wallet. Um, so I don't actually know for certain. I was very disappointed in YouTube TV that it full on doesn't allow me to see a damn thing. So I'm like, oh, right. I wanted to watch this week's episode of Supergirl. Like, I wonder if I can do it for the CW website or something. Um, so I don't actually know for certain. I, I'll have to try that out and see if I can even watch the episode. Uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering like, uh, hmm. So we can do some real time investigation here. Let me see. Let me fire up that good old CBS All Access app. I mean, we were just talking about data and, and you know invisible lines in the sand. This is one of the sillier ones. Oh, due to licensing restrictions, video is not available outside your country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. <laughs> oh, oh! I wonder if I can watch it in Netflix then. <laughs> it's basically free everywhere well, so else mean, in the like, world. So when I'm in the states and I log into Netflix, I get American Netflix, not Canadian Netflix. Ooh, let's see here. Because I remember I watched some movie, some Rolling Stones movie when I was down in Denver once, and it wasn't available here in Canada till like six months later. Oh, Star Trek Discovery new episode weekly. Can I can I actually watch? Oh, is this what it looks like in Netflix? Light and Shadow. Let me see if I can watch the episode. I apologize if it comes out on the on the air. Mm-hmm. No spoilers for Mark, so I'll try not to do show anything here. <laughs> oh yeah, I can. Oh okay. I, whoa, forget CBS All Access. <laughs> Watching on Netflix. Yeah, I'm, like I'm wondering the world. like what time it would be available to you. Like would it, would it be on at five p.m. or sorry eight p.m. tomorrow night tonight? I guess for you, right? Because you're you're ten, ten hours or whatever ahead of us. I don't actually. That's a good question. I don't know if they if they release it everywhere at the same time. Like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I basically just yeah. You know what? In the United in the United States comes out at the same time as you guys, I think, right? Isn't it kind of late, like 8 p.m. or something when it comes out for you guys? Yeah, 8 p.m., yeah. Okay. What time is it available for you? Like 5. It's not immediately available. It seems like it's like 10 minutes delayed before the uh, the magic caching mechanism unlocks and I can see the episode show up. And mm. Some nights, other, other than others, I'll be a little bit more worried about recording at the same time sort of thing. But uh, yeah, so if it's 5 p.m. on Thursday, and it's Wednesday over there right now, right? Right. Thursday. So then add 12, it'll be 5 a.m and then another like three to four like eight in the morning might be able to watch them on oh no you know what Friday morning there might be a speaker thing so I don't know probably not at the same time you guys do mm. yeah but we'll see talk about we were just talking about storing people's private information and the difficulties with the, an internet connected world and invisible lines in the sand and here I am running into a bro you know <laughs> you know I'm a, a US person you know I'm paying for this why don't you just let me watch this regardless of where I'm at why does it mm. matter that I happen like it's on my same device for heaven's sake it's not like I handed my uh, credentials to somebody else yeah but you, your computer could have been stolen taken to japan with your I, apple watch i mean that's that's entirely possible but it seemed like a, a very a very uh yeah. around the, the world and not very straightforward sort of way to to get your your content your content yeah. fix and i i you know in terms of ad targeting it's funny to see you know watching a little bit of youtube and i'm like come on google you, yes i happen to be physically sitting in japan right now but i'm logged in as myself and you could probably surmise that i don't speak japanese just given how often i ask chrome to translate a page for me yeah. why are you giving me japanese only no english whatsoever ads it's like you're completely wasting everybody's time and money by showing me this well on that delightful note i will see you guys next time yeah or talk to us next time have fun mm-hmm. conference all right, all right. thank you okay bye bye bye, bye. bye.